Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. From his humble beginnings in the state of Iowa to a prosperous career in international mining, Herbert Hoover would become one of the most beloved figures of the early 20th century. Using his personal wealth to feed thousands of people, Hoover was considered the ideal presidential candidate in the 1928 election. That year, his victory would be so great it would be dubbed a landslide, and he appeared set to become one of the most popular presidents of modern time. In 1929, however, that all changed as the Great Depression devastated the United States, and millions blamed him for the collapse. Now, 80 years later, many believe that Herbert Hoover did nothing as his country fell to pieces. However, closer inspection changes that narrative in radical new ways. On this episode, we discuss President Herbert Hoover. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 4 of the series, we're discussing game changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, on our author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we leave the world traveling behind us and return to something for most of us here in America that's very close to home. We're not talking about the exotic locales of the Yucatan uh, or of South Africa, no. We're going to start this story in, of all places, Iowa. On this episode, we're going to be discussing one of the most controversial and I think misunderstood presidents in all of American history. He was the 31st president of the United States, Herbert Hoover. Now, obviously you're pretty excited about this, right? We hear Herbert Hoover from Iowa, we all get uh, really pumped. But the reality is, I think uh, there's a general disconnect between the person that Herbert Hoover really was, the things that Herbert Hoover really did, and the reputation that Herbert Hoover still has. I'd like to examine Herbert Hoover a bit. I don't want to say we're going to close the book on him. The jury is still out. The jury will always be out on any topic in history if you're doing it right. But I think we can take a look at the man, see what he did, and see if he really was what some have called the American Nero. Now, if you know the old story of Nero, the story goes that Rome burns and Emperor Nero plays a fiddle. That very likely didn't happen. Uh, but it kind of shows the, the way that people view him. I mean, he'll be a metaphor for the rest of, of, of history to this point. Uh, Herbert Hoover is going to be a man who presides over the United States of America uh, during the worst economic collapse in its history, even still today. Many people will say he didn't do enough. Many people will say that he refused to do anything. And he did nothing while the world fell apart. 
And again, that's been the book on Herbert Hoover really for the last 80 years. The question is, however, how much of that reputation is deserved? What does he do while he's in the White House? And should he be pigeonholed into that place? We're going to talk about Herbert Hoover today. Not a blow-by-blow of his life, again. That's not what we're doing here on Wartime this season. We're going to keep him in context, sort of examine him at his most crucial points of his life. Talk about who he was before the presidency and who he becomes long after. And you'll see that's a very different story. Let's talk a little bit about Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was born in Iowa in 1874. Just to give you some idea, he's born at a time when America is really about to come into its own in what we call the Gilded Age. Now, in 1874, you're still dealing with, in a very real sense, the aftermath of the Civil War in America. Very horrible, brutal time in American history. But as Herbert Hoover comes of age, when he reaches 18 years old, 20 years old, it'll be the 1890s. This is an age of unbelievable prosperity. For the United States. This is not a time when America is a global power, not yet, but it is a time when America is really starting to explore a lot of new markets and forward markets and realize a lot of potential that it has right here at home. You see steel mills, you see uh, manufacturing explode on the East Coast. We call this the Industrial Revolution. And you see in the West, a lot of new natural resources that we didn't have the technology to harvest before finally being realized. So money is coming from literally all directions, and Herbert Hoover will benefit from this as a young man. He's a mining engineer for most of his time in private life before the presidency. Uh, He goes to Australia. He goes to China. He's a real world traveler. He branches off on his own around the turn of the century, about 1900. And when it's all said and done, Herbert Hoover has offices in New York, San Francisco, St. Petersburg, Russia, in Paris, and Mandalay, and Burma. I mean, everywhere you go, uh, Herbert Hoover seems to be there. Now, why I'm telling you this is because, again, from his humble beginnings in Iowa, he really makes something of himself in a relatively short amount of time. And I want you to understand this one thing about Herbert Hoover. The man is absolutely a winner in almost everything that he does. What he puts his mind to, he's successful. He generates a pretty healthy fortune through his mining operations, and it seems like he is very much on an elevator that only goes one direction, and that is up. So, where does Hoover become a public figure? Well, we're going to get to 1914. Hoover is still not in politics. Uh, He's a wealthy entrepreneur. He's a man from very humble beginnings, And I will stress this because I think it's important. He's extraordinarily generous with his wealth. The reason I stress that is because later on in life, this will be the greatest knock against him, that he's stingy or that he's uncaring. It just isn't true. It really comes down to political philosophy. But in 1914, World War I breaks out, and it's the most destructive event in human history. Millions of people will die. Even after enduring the war, millions of people will starve. These are non-combatants because you have massive armies rampaging through Europe, eating up farms, sucking out resources, you name it. So Herbert Hoover sees some of this devastation. He jumps onto the scene and he begins a food drive to, to bring uh, goods and supplies into Belgium. Belgium's in a really tough place 
during World War I because it's really in the middle of Germany and France. Uh, it is literally caught uh, in a battle zone. So Her Herbert Hoover begins as an individual private citizen, raising money, raising awareness, and bringing food and supplies to these people. When it's all told, they think the value of the of the goods that Hoover donated to Belgium was worth over one hundred and fifty million dollars. Now, one hundred and fifty million dollars, big deal. I mean, we spend that in like ten seconds in the West today, but at that time, that's an unheard of amount of money. And remember, it's all privately raised and privately donated for the sole purpose of doing good. So this relief to Belgium spearheaded by this renegade industrialist, this mining uh, tycoon, uh, Herbert Hoover, is an ultimate good in the world at the time. Whenever people think of the good guy, whenever people think of the selfless man, Herbert Hoover is likely the image that they get. Not bad from a farm boy from Iowa. But this is the idea. And he really puts himself on the map. Now, he organizes this relief effort from London, England. He has an office there. And when he's there, he meets the ambassador from America um, at the American consulate. And this ambassador realizes that this man is a very valuable political asset. Now, again, important we clarify. To this point, Herbert Hoover is not a political person. He is a registered Republican. But his voting record is sketchy at best because he's out of the country so much. Uh, and, again, he doesn't necessarily play to either side. So whenever the Democratic president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, approaches him about a job, it's largely political. Here's a good guy. Here's a well-known guy, very famous for his humanitarian causes. Let's get him on our side. Now, Hoover understands and this is very hard for any of us to really grasp, that regardless of your political affiliation, when the President of the United States comes calling, you tend to answer. And Woodrow Wilson, the man who was President from 1912, and it will be all the way to 1920, will call upon Herbert Hoover to lead something called the U.S. Food Administration. It wasn't necessarily that Hoover was the right man for that job, but it's that you need this guy as part of your group somewhere. Find an opening for him and let him do what he does best. And whenever Hoover becomes part of the Wilson administration, even though Hoover's a Republican, Wilson's a Democrat, he immediately gets back to what he was doing best, and that was raising money to help feed the poor, especially in Europe uh, and, as we'll see, Russia. Now, throughout the war, throughout World War I, Again, millions will starve, millions will die. And Hoover takes it upon himself to continue raising money and receiving grants to feed those people. Now, it's very important you understand, Hoover is not spending taxpayer money to do, to do this. He's just not. He's raising money from outside sources. And he's bringing them in. Now, as the war goes on... Many people within the administration begin to question why Hoover is seemingly endlessly devoted to feeding people who have nothing. And what he says very famously is, food will win this war. For him, no amount of money is too much. People are beginning to say, you're collecting this wealth, why not put it toward the war effort? But Hoover has nothing to do with that. He's very, very committed to the cause that he's glued himself to. When the war ends, I think we see a lot of the real Herbert Hoover start to come out. 
And again, this is one of the reasons why I think this man is so endlessly fascinating. The war ends. If you're familiar with the end of World War I, uh, it's a pretty nasty breakup. Germany is blamed entirely for the war by the joint efforts of France, Britain, Italy, and, and the United States. And the Russians, even though they were strong uh, allies of the British and French and Americans, are really left out of the equation because they're slowly but surely being taken over by communism. So whenever the war ends, you have this big mess. Woodrow Wilson and his administration start reshaping the world as we know it in their mind. But Herbert Hoover, uh, this head of this random organization within the U.S. bureaucracy, stays committed to feeding people. Not just those allies in France and Britain and Belgium, but also some people that many people within the United States government feel are problematic, like the Russians and the Germans. Remember, no one is more hated and no one is more to blame in the minds of the West for this war than the Germans. And Herbert Hoover is committed to feeding people. Now, whenever he starts giving resources, many people within the U.S. government strongly speak out against it. Henry Cabot Lodge, U.S. Senator, uh, said that what Herbert Hoover was doing was terribly reckless and unnecessary. Hoover says, and this is a quote, 20 million people are starving. Whatever their politics, they shall be fed. With that, he also begins giving support to the Russians. Again, communists, very frightening uh, for the West at that time. And he has a large amount of success. The Soviet author Maxim Gorky will write to Hoover, and here's another direct quote. This is an, a letter written by a Soviet author thanking Herbert Hoover, this random government official, for his efforts. He writes, Your help will enter history as a unique, gigantic achievement, worthy of the greatest glory which will long remain in the memory of millions of Russians for whom you have saved from death. So there you have, and again, I can't stress this enough, Herbert Hoover, this private citizen who's just jumped into public life, becoming the darling, or as uh, later confidants will call him, the wonder boy, uh, of the sort of American virtue of the world. I mean, he is the quintessential man. Self-made, self-reliant, very wealthy, and extraordinarily generous. He's not a political person, I'll stress it again, but he's surrounded now by political people. And this is very important you understand this. Both sides in American politics, Democrats and Republicans, want him on their ticket. Not because he's a great guy, not because he'd probably do great things, but because he's wildly popular and is likely to win. Now, he'll be courted by both sides in 1920. There's going to be a presidential election to join their side. He is a registered Republican, even though he served in a Democratic administration, and he will cast his lot with the Republican Party. Now, we're going to step a little bit away from Hoover here. Again, we did we have given, I think, a nice detail of his life and his reputation. But we want to understand this time period, what's going on in America and the rest of the world, to let you understand Herbert Hoover in his fullest extent. In 1920, you'll see the election of a man named Warren Gamaliel Harding from Ohio. Warren G. Harding. He takes over the White House again in 1920 the first Republican to hold it in eight years. And with him, he brings in a heavy and very serious political ideology and political agenda. He is what we would call today a small government conservative. He believes that taxes should be 
uh, very low, if non-existent, on the super wealthy. And taxes should be raised on everybody making less than $66,000 a year. That's a lot of people. He believes that government should have very little role in private business, if any. And that business should be allowed to do what it wants to do, free of regulation, and in his mind, restrictions. He says very famously, we want less government in business and more business in government. So when Warren G. Harding takes over, yes, he has a lot of personal flaws. Many people will say he's uh, what we call like a blunder machine. Uh, he makes one gaffe after another. He says things like his favorite Shakespeare play is Charles V. That is not a Shakespeare play. He uses words like normalcy. He talks about a return to normalcy after the war. Normalcy is not a word. It's a word he invents. And I'm guilty of using it too, as probably most of you are. But this is the kind of thing that, that Warren G. Harding has as president. Uh, people close to him said, why can he not hire a private secretary to clothe his language in the manners customarily used by educated men? I mean... I don't want to give you the impression that Warren G. Harding is like a dunce or a dummy. You know, he makes mistakes when he talks like all of us do, but he's really one of the first presidents that have, you know, radio uh, and recording devices near him. So I'm sure others did it too. We just have a better record of him, unfortunately for him. But again, the ideology that Warren G. Harding brings is much more important than anything else. Small government, low taxes, very pro-business. His vice president is a man named Calvin Coolidge, former governor of Massachusetts, well-known, well-known, uh, staunch conservative. His secretary of the treasury is Andrew Mellon. Think of that. And again, he'll actually get Herbert Hoover, the man we're talking about today, to be his secretary of commerce. Now, if all of that is confusing to you and you don't know what small government conservative means and what pro-business president means, just think of it this way. Warren G. Harding and his cabinet, his closest advisors, are all very successful in the business world. And the idea they bring is this. If you can run a business successfully, what would happen if you ran the country like you ran a business? Calvin Coolidge will, in some manner of speaking, his vice president, uh, give us a paraphrased quote of, um, the business of America is business. I mean, this is like Mitt Romney's dream running the White House and the country like you'd run a corporate boardroom. That's what Warren G. Harding brings in with him. And those are the people he surrounds himself with. Now, where does Herbert Hoover fit into this? Well, even though Hoover is a very generous man, even though he's done more humanitarian work than probably any president we've ever had, maybe Bill Clinton has done more after his presidency. Remember, Hoover does this all beforehand. He has this really deep and profound personal belief in something he calls volunteerism. And the idea is, we as a nation can do great things when we rally ourselves together. But he doesn't believe it's the job of the government to do those things. It's the job of the people. He says the difference between a dictatorship and a democracy is that relief efforts in a dictatorship come from the top down. Democracy, they come from the bottom up. I'm not saying I endorse these beliefs. I'm saying this is what Hoover says. But this is all very critical to sort of crafting his worldview. He'll get his real first test much more quickly than he thinks. In 1923, 
while touring the American West, Warren G. Harding will die. His vice president, Calvin Coolidge, a small, soft-spoken man from Massachusetts, will become president of the United States in 1923. Remember, he was not elected. He was simply the next in line. But he has an agenda as well, and it's very similar to what uh, Warren G. Harding does. Whenever Coolidge became president, whenever Harding died, that is, uh, Coolidge was said to be visiting his mother. He was in a building with no electricity, uh, no means of communication. Uh, he was reached by a messenger, and he took his oath of office in front of a notary public, and there you have a new president. Not many people in America know Calvin Coolidge. Not many understand him. They know he's a lot like Warren G. Harding. But they aren't necessarily upset about that. Because early on, uh, the policies that Harding and Coolidge endorse tend to be doing pretty well. Europe's in bad shape. America's in pretty good shape. Money starts to flow. The economy starts to explode with wealth. And before you know it, we're in the midst of what we talk about as the Roaring Twenties. Now here's the thing. Taxes are low on the super rich. They're high on everybody else. But economically, the country is just booming. They're doing really, really well. So people begin to wonder, in the 1924 election, four years later, Calvin Coolidge will run for president for the first time, why would we vote this guy out? I mean, look how well things are in the aftermath of World War I. We are booming. This is the great Gatsby. Uh, wine is flowing. Parties are being had. Businesses is growing faster than ever before. And that's sort of what propels Calvin Coolidge in 1924 to victory. Again, Herbert Hoover stays on as Secretary of Commerce. And this is an age, we can say, of big promises. I think big promises are a big part of this story. Whenever Calvin Coolidge runs for office, he says, I'm a small government conservative. I'll keep the government out of your life. I won't spend taxpayer money to solve the ills of society. People like that message. They vote for him in 1924. And he wins pretty convincingly. He gets a full term in the White House. But that's a really tough ideology whenever bad things happen. I mean, they're really put to the test. And something really terrible will happen in America in 1927. In 1927, there's a what we call the Great Mississippi River Flood. It's the worst natural disaster in American history aside from Hurricane Katrina in 2005. The death toll is catastrophic. The damage and property lost is enormous. And people in that region begin to look to the president for help. They begin to say to Coolidge, what can you do for us? Send us support. Send us help. Send us aid. Feed us. Get us out of this uh, floodplain that's, that's, that's washed away their homes. And Calvin Coolidge will do basically nothing. Uh, he said again, I ran for office with the intention of keeping the government out of your life. I believe that we as a country can rally around these people and help them, but it's not my job as president to save you. And he takes a beating for that. I mean, a lot of people look at Calvin Coolidge uh, at the time and say, how can you not help these people? It's a pretty terrible scene. So Coolidge finally bends, and who does he call upon but his Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, the great humanitarian, the man who saved and fed Europe. He says, do the same thing you did there, here but don't spend any taxpayer money. Herbert Hoover gets a grant to help these people. He raises money to help these people. He goes out in public. He goes on radio. He does all of these things. 
And he says, let's help these people. And he becomes a real poster boy for that real sense of American generosity of the age. He's easily one of the most visible and famous uh, political figures in America at the time. Now, Calvin Coolidge isn't really big on Herbert Hoover. We know that by looking at his writings. Again, he calls him the Wonder Boy. And you can imagine that's done facetiously. He says he receives more unsolicited advice from Herbert Hoover than anyone else, and none of it's very good. But at any rate, Hoover jumps out, and he organizes another relief effort, not with taxpayer money, but with money he raises on his own. And he saves the people of the Mississippi River Valley. A lot of money made. A lot of people helped. So again, I have to stress to you, for the average American in 1927, when they hear the name Herbert Hoover, they don't think of, oh, another politician. They don't think of, oh, here's a partisan figure, good guy, but definitely someone who puts his party before his country. They think of the ultimate hero. They think of the good guy. They think of the person who is a real model for success and for generosity. The perfect American in a lot of ways. So 1928 comes around. And there's going to be a presidential vacancy. Calvin Coolidge will not run for office. Everybody is saying, get Hoover on the ticket. He's the man we want. Why? If you're a Republican, you have eight years of service under your belt. You have a booming economy. One of the wealthiest periods in all of American history across the board. And you have a guy that is virtually guaranteed to win because everybody loves him. Democrats love him. Republicans love him. Again, there's nothing about this guy that you are against, not yet. If you're not a political person, he's a generous man. He's a very humble man. He's a selfless man. If you are a business owner, he made a fortune as a private business owner. If you're a farmer in the Midwest, he's one of you. He literally came from a house, which, by the way, you can still visit, in Iowa. I mean, everything's in place. And in 1928, the election rolls in. He faces a man named Al Smith, a Catholic, first Catholic presidential candidate. He wins overwhelmingly. He gets something like 58% of the vote. I mean, it is a crushing victory. It's a victory that's so big that pundits think they need a new term for it. And this is the first time in American history that we'll use the word landslide to describe a presidential victory. So think of that. Hoover won so big, they had to invent a new term to describe his victory. It was a landslide. In 1928, people are happier than ever. Money's flowing. Everyone's doing well. Most ascribe it to the values and virtues of the Republican Party, the small government pro-business ideology. And, and Herbert Hoover doesn't have to do much of anything but ride that out. All he has to do is say, I'm going to keep doing what we've been doing for the last eight years. And he'll win every time. Now, he makes a lot of promises. Again, politics are about promises. And Herbert Hoover will keep them. This is the amazing thing. And he's beloved for it. He says things like, Prosperity cannot be restored or maintained by raiding the public treasury. He says, I'll do everything I can to help you, but I won't spend taxpayer money. He motivates people to help themselves, and that's great. And as long as things are going well, there's no problem. If the good times roll, they'll roll for Herbert Hoover too. Problem is, however, 
they're going to come crashing down pretty quickly. It's one of the sad realities of presidential history that we tend to define these people in the moments of crisis more than anywhere else. I mean, Herbert Hoover's presidency will be defined by the beginning of the Great Depression. But we must remember that there was a presidency before that. Herbert Hoover does a lot of things that progressives would have thought were really, uh, really successful. Closes tax loopholes. Uh, he empowers the federal government to go after uh, criminals, organized crime, uh, racketeers like Al Capone. He does these things. He proposes a Department of Education. He's only the second president in history to host an African-American in the White House for a formal dinner. I mean, he does a lot of great things. Things that people on the left and the right could get behind. But again, we define him during his time of crisis more than anything else. Again, his presidency will last from 1929 until 1933. And in those four years, America changes a great deal. In 1929, the major event that sets everything off for this country is what we call the stock market crash. Now, a couple things about this, uh, and we won't talk much about it. The stock market crash does not cause the Great Depression. It's sort of a myth we have. But it is indicative of the same factors that do cause the Great Depression. The fact of the matter is, when the stock market crashes in the fall of 1929, seven months later it largely recovers, but everybody's lost so much at that point. It only benefits very few. America had some serious economic problems. And they all came from the policies that everyone loved so much of Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover, small government pro-business policies. Again, this is a group that believed that regulation of business was a hamper. It was a restriction. So they took away many restrictions on what businesses could do. Things today that are illegal were perfectly legal back then and encouraged by the presidents. Things like competitors trading books, trading financial information to see how they could maximize their own profits. I mean, imagine today if like Coke and Pepsi, right, two great rivals, and I have no evidence they did this, but I'm using them as an example, actually traded each other's financial records, saw where they were making the most money, where they could make more money, and agreed to raise prices. Who does that hurt? Well, that helps them, that hurts you. That is illegal in every way, shape, and form, but it was absolutely encouraged back then. And why not? The money seemed to be endless. Look at American auto manufacturing. American auto manufacturing were making so many cars and selling so many cars. Again, the money was seemingly uh, endless. The money was not going to run out. And that's what everybody saw, and that's why they voted the way they did. Strong, small government, conservative Republican for the entire 1920s. But the problem is, from an economic standpoint, and I am not an economist, again, I'm a historian, but these attributes are important to understand. There were some very troubling aspects that economists could see happening at the time, which, if something went wrong, could bring the whole economy down. The party would stop. So what am I talking about? In the simplest way, we had all of our eggs in one basket. That's all you need to know, but because we're here, let's talk about it. America dominates two businesses, two fields in the world in the 1920s in manufacturing. One is automobiles. Two is tobacco. And when we talk about the figures involved in that, the amount of jobs involved, the amount of people who depend on that, 
you're going to see it is very scary. Here's an example. Three of the biggest auto manufacturers in America control 90% of the industry. Think of that. There's a lot of automobile manufacturers in the country, but three corporations control 90% of that business. That field is dominated. Let's look at, for example, tobacco. There are four major tobacco uh, growers and sellers in America, the four biggest on earth. Those four control over 90% of that wealth. Now, there's some other smaller ones, but let's face it. All that wealth is concentrated in one place. If one of those businesses was to go bankrupt or have a bad year or if something like that was to ha happen, it wouldn't just end their business, but it would crush the industry as we know it. And that's exactly what happens. In the automobile industry, they're making more cars than they can sell. Here's the thing. Everybody wants to own a car, right? But you don't buy five or six. You buy one or two. And these factories keep pumping them out, pumping them out. Production far outweighed the ability to sell. So what you have is you're making all these cars, but no one's buying them. So you're putting more product on the market that's driving the price down. I mean, these are all economic indicators that are very troublesome. And this happened in fields all across the country. This consolidation, right? All of these eggs being in one basket. This is a very big problem. Maybe even more scary than that. The top 1% of banks in this country controlled 98% of the wealth. Now keep in mind, every small town, think like it's a wonderful life. Every small town has its own bank. 1% of the banks controlled 98% of the wealth. So if anything should happen to those 1% of banks, the whole thing comes crashing down. There's no regulation of business. There's no rules for them to follow. So they can do whatever they want. Problem is, and the people of America don't know this until it's too late, that all comes to an end. Not inevitably, but what we can say is uh, it... Uh, it makes for a very risky and dangerous situation. So the stock market crashes in 1929. The rest of the economy will start to collapse as well. Things are catching up with them. Overproduction. Maldistribution of resources. This begins to happen. And it all happens during the presidency of Herbert Hoover. Now, uh, we begin to see banks close across the country. We begin to see people losing their homes all across the country. And they start to look to the president for help. Now remember, whenever people thought about how great things were from 1920 to 1929, who did they look to for admiration? Who did they look to for thanks? The president. Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover. But now when things start to go badly, they'll do the same thing again. They look to the president. What does Herbert Hoover do? Well, remember, Hoover believes in volunteerism. He believes that people acting on their own, not acting because the government tells them to, should take care of themselves. He knows people are out there that can help, and he asks them to do it. He goes to business owners and he says, don't cut wages. Don't fire your employees. Don't downsize. Just wait. The economy will bounce back. These businesses say, do we have to do this? He says, no, of course not. But it's the right thing to do. But the problem is, and if you own a business, you know this, your number one priority to your workers, to yourself, is to make money, is to stay in the black. 
And you're going to do whatever it takes to make that money. If that means lowering pay, so be it. If it means cutting workers, so be it. Because if you don't have a business, they don't have jobs either. Hoover doesn't make them do this. He politely asks them to do this. And almost none of them do. Again, they save themselves first. They begin firing workers. By the end of the Great Depression, something like one out of four people will be unemployed and lose their homes. They'll be homeless. But again, they're looking to Herbert Hoover, saying, why can't you do something to help us? And Herbert Hoover is basically saying, when I was elected, remember, it was a landslide. I told you, we cannot restore prosperity by raiding the public treasury. Spending taxpayer money is not the key. That's not what you brought me here for. You elected me for that reason. And he's right. But now things have changed. And all of a sudden, that proposition doesn't sound so great. I mean, it's a real tragic irony for Herbert Hoover, because he was elected with such uh, fanfare, with such admiration from all sides. And he begins to be punished, and he'll be really beaten down by doing nothing but living up to his promises. I mean, how often do we complain about politicians who say one thing and do another? That's never been Herbert Hoover. It's never been anything of what he did, and it still isn't. He promised this sort of action. When he took it, he's lambasted for it. And a lot of people begin to look at Hoover like the president who doesn't care. Again, they're losing homes. People in cities are finding vacant parks, old industrial zones, and they're building homes out of cardboard and sheet metal. And they bundle them all together, and they call them what? Hoovervilles. Think of that. They call them Hoovervilles. This man has done nothing to deserve that. But in their minds, he did. Men begin to walk around with their pockets turned inside out, showing they have no money. They call it the Hoover flag. And again, Hoover sits in the White House and hears this. And he cannot understand. He's doing nothing but what he was brought in to do. He's trying in a lot of ways to raise money. He's trying in a lot of ways to, uh, I think, create a climate of trust and security to spend money. But he's not doing it with taxpayer money. He's not doing it from the top down. He's not allowing the government to lead the way. That's what's worked for eight years. That's why he was elected with such fanfare. And again, people are beginning to blame this whole thing, the beginnings of the Great Depression, on him. Now, that's the view we have of Herbert Hoover's presidency. But the fact remains, when you go to the sources, you're always going to see things that you didn't expect to find, especially when you follow some sort of a script or a narrative. And what you actually see is, Herbert Hoover, and he probably didn't want to advertise this necessarily too much, did actually begin to go back on his word in the final years of his presidency. He begins taking on spending projects, hopefully stimulating the economy. Now, the man who will ultimately replace Herbert Hoover... Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes like the poster child of this. But make no mistake, Hoover was doing this first. The Hoover Dam on the Colorado River. That's named for him. He ordered that construction and the government paid for it. And he did so for the reason of maybe, hopefully, stimulating the economy. In 1932, he'll pass the Revenue Act of 1932. He'll sign it. It will tax the very wealthiest Americans, the top 1%. 63% of their wealth. It's the highest peacetime tax increase in history. That's not very conservative of him. That's not very pro-business of him. But he's trying. 
and still being blamed and still being insulted for, quote, doing nothing. But upon further research, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. Again, when you hear the things that he does, there's nothing small government about this. There's nothing conservative about this. He advocates for what he calls a prevailing wage. This is a precursor to some sort of a minimum wage. He advocates for a maximum of an eight-hour workday. Again, these are things that directly interfere with businesses, how they operate, why they operate. It goes against his own personal philosophy and the personal philosophy of the Republican Party for the last, say, 15 years. But he's doing this, and he's still being hammered for it. Now, the, in 1932, the election comes around for his re-election. He does want to be re-elected. It might be a matter of pride, but he also really is glued to the policies he's put in place. And he'll run against the governor of New York, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. A couple things about Roosevelt. One, he's super rich. And two, he doesn't hide it. But he doesn't really make it an issue. He makes it very clear that it has nothing to do with his rules president. Roosevelt will say things like, If you're going to try something, do it frankly. If it fails, admit it. But most importantly, try something. He advocates uh, huge amounts of financial and economic experimentation largely fueled by tax increases that will help everybody, at least he hopes. Most Americans don't know if they believe it will actually work. But when they see that, compared to Herbert Hoover saying things like, prosperity cannot be restored by raids in the public treasury, in their minds, they have someone who will clearly fight for them. And the optics of this 1932 election are crazy. There's Franklin Delano Roosevelt, bright smiles, very positive, everywhere he goes largely in places where smiles haven't been seen in months. And there's Herbert Hoover. He's sort of beaten. He's sort of downtrodden. He's sort of irritable and angry. I mean, it's a no contest. As much as the 1928 election of Herbert Hoover was a landslide, 1932 will put that to shame, and Hoover is ushered out of office in a pretty incredible way. Amazingly, in 1928, believe it or not, Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually supported Hoover, even though they're different parties in the election. But it's an important story, I think. It's an important narrative. It's an important drama. Because it shows you, number one, how fickle American politics can be. And number two, how little control we may have over the economy in its totality. I mean, Herbert Hoover, again, they had to invent the word landslide for his win. He did nothing to change his stripes. He stayed exactly who he was the whole time. And he left office as one of the greatest villains in American history. Is it deserved? Probably not. Does one person have the final say on this? Never. Remember, in history, the jury is always still out. Now, Herbert Hoover, if you ask most people today if they know about him, they'll say those very negative things. Um, and it's very unfortunate because of the man who he was at the beginning of his life compared to how people viewed him at the end. But hey, that's American politics. If you stick to your guns... If you make a clear statement and stay to it, odds are it's going to hurt you a lot worse than doing the alternative, which is probably why we see it so often. Call me cynical, maybe a little bit. Thank you for joining us. As always, you pick the next episode. Visit Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer or search Wartime Podcast on Twitter or at Brady Kreitzer. Go to BradyKreitzer.com or WartimePodcast.com. Send me an email. Send me a tweet. Let me know. I'm happy to respond. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.